In this episode, we discuss the movie Rabid. Copernicus in the 16th century proposed that the Earth revolves around the sun. David Cronenberg in 1977 published the movie Rabid. Is the Cronenbergian turn as significant as the Copernican revolution in science? We also take a deep dive into vaccination and whether vaccine mandates are ethically justifiable. John? Yes, Brian. Brian, how's it going? It's good, John. It's so early. The sun has just risen, yeah. and I, I can feel it burning my skin. Really? Mm-hmm. I have a sudden sensitivity. My vitamin D levels are undetectable. You know what else is undetectable? I could make a reference to your genitalia, but mm. that's still too low bar, you know, for this type of show. So It's too early for that. But, uh, what's undetectable? Asymptomatic rabies infections, John. Mm. Sometimes when you have rabies, you you foam at the mouth and you attack people on the subway. Mm-hmm. Other times you just look a little groggy and uh, there's an anus in your armpit that uh, has a syringe attached to it. Right, right, yeah. Right. I guess they're both symptomatic, but visually symptomatic, maybe we can say. There's some hidden symptoms. Yeah. I've heard about that. That's why you got to get the rabies vaccinations. You do. And uh, we can talk later about whether vaccinations ought to be mandatory. Mm. Yeah, that uh, is from the movie Rabid from 1977. You'll never guess who directed this movie. No, I can guess it because I actually watched the movie too. It was uh, David Cronenberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David Cronenberg, yeah. David Cronenberg. We're huge Cronenberg fans. We're the biggest fans of Mr. Cronenberg. Mm -hmm. We have giant foam fingers with David Cronenberg number one written on them. Yeah, and I got this big tattoo of David Cronenberg right <laughs> in the center of my chest. My my David Cronenberg tattoo is inside of my chest, so oh my. I think I'm the bigger fan. <laughs> it's true. And it would make more sense, too. It would make more sense. What did you think of Rabid? Rabid, 1977. Not his first picture. He did a couple of other films. Sounded like two of them were somewhat unreleased, kind of underground. And then there was one before this, which was called... Shivers. There's a one before this named Shivers. I'm just considering this movie and Shivers together as his early release. It's a collective two-volume set. Well, just like a, a beautiful butterfly has to go through a chrysalis stage, this might be David's chrysalis stage. He's birthed into the world much like an armpit node. Yeah. O only later does he shed his chrysalis skin and and molt and uh, produce movies like Videodrone. And what was that movie we saw with the organ, illegal organ tattooing? Crimes of the Future. He, Crimes of the Future. He sheds his skin and then two giant ears kind of come out from his back and he just flies away. Yeah. And, and all he's wearing is a scarf. <laughs> yeah. He's just, <laughs> yeah. And he says some sort of monotone, semi intellectual <laughs> thing as he flies away. Like, I never believed this to be the true world. And then he just kind of flutters <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's David for you. Uh, <laughs> so let me do a quick plot summary, just kind of get into this. So Rabid, basically a couple is riding a motorcycle and they're coming up around some bends and, and curves. And as, as they arrive around a bend, there's a, a van that has placed itself in the middle of the road. They have a car accident they, or a motorcycle accident. The boyfriend goes flying off. His name's Hart. Goes flying off the motorcycle. Rose is trapped under the bike, melted by the gasoline on fire. 
significant trauma to her body. She's then taken to a plastic surgery clinic, and the doctor there who is, well, we'll go into his character later. There's a doctor there who assesses that if she isn't treated in the moment, then within 30 minutes, she would lose her life. So then he engages in a semi or experimental process where he pulls skin off of her body, somehow subjects the skin to some treatment, which then turns the skin into what appears to be stem cells, uses these stem cells to populate her body, and her body then regenerates with some side effects. She then finds that in her armpit, there's a, a node, I would say, which comes out, and this node is used to infect people. That's the side product, but that's just an accidental thing. But then pull blood from the other person to feed her. And then she goes along, does this in a way in which she wishes she didn't have to do, has to do it in order to survive. The side effect of this process is that it's infecting people with a, a rabid type experience. Process of generating skin cells through a stem cell type approach creates this node. After the motorcycle accident, the organs, the internal organs of Rose were damaged to the point at which they were unusable. The idea is that these stem cells then had a hyper level of evolution and the node was created as a way to supplement her nutrition that wouldn't be accomplished through her intestinal system, which was destroyed. So you're saying that because of the motorcycle accident, her internal organs can't digest food normally anymore? So the organ, the I'm going to call it an anus rather than a node. Okay. The, okay. If I can, the armpit anus okay. genetically adapts as a secondary method of feeding her body. Yeah. So I didn't pick up on that by watching the movie, but I did a little research post-movie. And mm. from David himself, really? uh, yeah, yeah, he said that the armpit anus or the tentacle. It's like a little syringe. There's something between a syringe and a penis. Right. And I, I do think there's some sexual undertones to it because the reproductive systems could be damaged as well. So maybe it's just sort of this ad hoc, in the moment, created hyper-evolution of, I don't have an intestine system as I used to. I don't have a reproductive system like I used to. Maybe this, this item accomplishes both those tasks, maybe. But as it's, it's functional in the movie, it kind of punches into someone, pulls out their blood, sort of has a soothing effect, maybe, even maybe an undertone of a sexual effect for the person experiencing the node. I'm sure having blood drawn from your system through that process can be painful. So maybe it's a anesthetic type process. And so that's what the sexual experience might be attached to. I don't know for sure. The victims of the armpit anus seem to have a coma, a brief coma. Mm -hmm. But as their infection gestates, she seems blissful after feeding her armpit anus. I'm thinking of that scene in the dirty movie theater where she gets that gentleman to sit next to her and... After she feeds on him, there's a look of, of bliss and perhaps sexual release on her face. So there is some implied pleasure. It could be because when she hasn't fed, she seems to have a withdrawal type experience where she's in pain and, and agony and, and she's sweating. So it could be a return to baseline, which in itself provides a sense of pleasure because the alternative is so miserable. But all these things are implied. Having described that plot line, is that the movie you saw? Is, that, is there anything I missed? I didn't see the movie telegraphing 
suggesting that it was a genetic adaptive feature. Rather, Dr. Kelloid talks about how using these neutral field graphs, as they're termed, can have cancerous side effects. So I think the movie was pointing us more towards an interpretation that the armpit anus penis syringe Mm -hmm. was a type of, I don't know, hyper cancerous growth. I was working under the assumption that she kind of had two, Rose kind of had two bellies to feed, so to speak. She had a normal human belly, but just like a zombie. And I think there's some overlap with zombie movies. She had this other unnatural hunger that she had to satisfy. And that was only, that was only able to be satisfied by victimizing uh, other people with her armpit, anus, penis syringe. So just for clarity, your viewpoint on this is that maybe the, the armpit syringe is a secondary parasite in a sense. Yeah, it's a, exactly. It's a parasitic organism that is inside her and she has to also feed it. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of that movie Brain Damage that we saw a while mm, ago. Um, ago. It was a bit ago, yeah. That guy lived inside the person's spine, and he'd come out and say, Hey, how you doing? And yeah. and it had an entity that needed to be fed, and it kind of controlled the person. Not not a David Cronenberg movie, but a Frank Hennenlauter, who did both Basket Case and Frankenhooker. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Basket Case, but not Frankenhooker. And we'll put it in the queue. Yeah, right, sounds good. You said that you said that this idea of a evolutionarily adaptive, ben- beneficial, I guess, for Rose because it replaced her damaged digestive tract. This this was a direct quote from Cronenberg. Yeah, this came straight from Cronenberg's mouth. Is a Cronen quote? Yeah, he was uh, he was saying that was the intention of it. Well, this is our this is our long sought and rarely found statement of authorial intent. Yeah, so, we have so to trust why are we it. Even, yeah, why are we even doubting it? Yeah, yeah. So we'll just go with that. And the interesting thing around evolution is that it is a neutral process and that it's a thoughtless movement towards survival. If we adopt this framework, maybe we layer that in where it kind of seemed like this tentacle had some, I guess, negative consequences. But if we think of it in a survival sort of mechanism of a feeding from another then it has less of a sort of demonic or sort of negative impact. It's more of a, I'm sorry, I'm trying to survive. This is how hyper-evolution provided me with an ability to do that. I tried using a cow. It didn't work. You know what I'm saying? So, like, this is the only way that I can feed. So, don't blame me. It's Mother Nature. Mm. I remember the scene where she hugs that guy, Lloyd, who is a a fan of having plastic surgery done to, to highlight his eyes and keep his features youthful. Uh, she, this is early on? Yeah, early on, her first victim. Mm-hmm. And right. she just like hugs him and, and then he starts bleeding out the side of his body. And I like how the movie didn't explain that until later. Later, Only later did you see the armpit, anus, syringe right. penis. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting that it's in the armpit. It does have a sexual undertone. It's like you have a crotch where a sexual organ might be populated by pubic hair and then you have an armpit which is essentially another crotch that is populated by hair that you get during puberty i've so always, I've always viewed it that way you've always viewed it that yeah. way you thought so, your armpits were your second crotch well, well, sometimes in the morning i just put deodorant in my crotch and, and then I, I think i'm good to go 
Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They're dark, potentially moist uh, crevices in the body, so it, it fits. Yeah, it's a hidden, hidden space that you can have a potential sex organ exit point if needed. It'd be, it's the alternative exit point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, for her, I guess hugging is putting arms around people is socially acceptable and, and even desired. So it's a way for her to more easily embrace her victims. If it was coming out of her toes or something, she'd have a harder time feeding. Yeah, it does require a certain amount of intimacy and closeness, much like a sexual encounter would. Yeah. You know, in thinking about hyper-evolution, I've always had an idea around, I've had an idea around, um, ever heard of my shotgun penis theory here? No. We're speaking purely biological here, so we'll talk about things that might come off as sexual, but that's not the intent. You know, you have a, a male penis, and you have one tube of, of transport for both urine and semen. Mm-hmm. I always thought what would make more sense is if you had a tube for urine and a separate tube for semen. And this is where the shotgun penis concept comes from. What benefits would such a setup confer? I felt it was a little unsanitary if I'm, say, for instance, impregnating someone and maybe I happen to have used the restroom recently, that there would be a contaminant. Mm -hmm. uh, and, And so that could cause some problems. And maybe with the shotgun penis... There would be uh, a cleaner tract and, and maybe a redundancy to it as well. You know, the reproduction is primary. So the idea that if my torso was destroyed, digestion for survival and reproduction are the two primary things. So, you know, with the shotgun penis, it would provide a, a redundancy to my ability to reproduce. Is there a way to get this idea in the hands of someone like David Cronenberg so that it can be brought to life in a film or... What plans do you have to exploit the genius of this idea? Yeah, I, um, maybe I could uh, somehow get in contact with his agent and kind of pitch this idea. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, I, either his agent or just go to directly to Vigo Mortensen with it. And uh, Vigo's got David on speed dial. <laughs> yeah, I could do a fan film. It, it probably won't get out of production. It'll be in pre-production hell for a while. <laughs> Well, that's uh, that's there, and um, I feel like this movie was both a zombie movie and not a zombie movie at the same time. Did you see it as a zombie movie or something different? It had two parts to it. So you have this hyper-evolutionary character, and then you also have a spontaneous generation of a virus, which it's difficult to accept one, but to accept both at the same time, it's like, okay, this person had a hyper evolution in which it created this armpit penis and there is a secondary virus that is spontaneously created which is compatible with the human and, and, and creates this violent tendency for them to go out and kill other humans and so it's like a, it's almost like two movies in one yeah well she's rose's patient zero and she doesn't foam at the mouth or lose control and attack random strangers biting them but that's what her feeding results in. So she goes out. I think she's the only one who has the armpit, anus, penis syringe. And she goes out and feeds. And then the victims of her feeding, they do not develop anus, armpit, syringe mm-hmm. penises. Rather, they right. develop rabies. And they foam at the mouth and they, they randomly bite people in public. So she's a, she's got a different symptom profile than her victims do. No, absolutely. And she doesn't even realize which, what's the uh, byproduct of her feeding you know and thinking about it biologically i don't know why 
just because I had a hyper evolution that then I also spontaneously create a virus that infects others. It doesn't necessarily feel like um, a sequence that makes sense because, you know, I'm as an entity on its own, have an evolutionary experience. And then all of a sudden this other virus just comes out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. There isn't really a backstory on the virus. I get the armpit penis, but the virus just, I don't know. There's, there isn't enough evidence that that would happen or, there's not enough structure to suggest how it happened. Yeah, I feel like there's this trope of uh, sort of femme fatale, black widow, female character going on in this movie. Many of her victims are men who she seduces into close contact and then feeds on. That feels like one one plank thematically. And then alongside that plank is this zombie outbreak containment theme, which obviously they're connected through the character of Rose, but they're not compatible they're not they don't cross over in a way yeah and I, I would push back a little bit on the sexual piece because half our victims are women which there's nothing wrong with lesbianism so that that could be it but most of the victims don't have a sexual interest the first person is just someone on the ward and who's who's trying to make sure that she feels better because she's thrashing but at the same at the same time in that scene she's lying there in bed with the sheets pulled down so you, her breasts are exposed and she says that she's cold and she wants to hug him and get his body warmth and when that happens she sort of moans and with pleasure and, and says how good it feels and, and and Lloyd sort of is trying to back off like hey this is I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this sort of thing so I think there is a sexual element as well even in that encounter yeah there is a little undertone but it's 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 uh, detectable but it's not the primary kind of pull and then the lady in the hot tub that she encounters the hot tub lady's like i'm yeah. getting out of the hot tub like she's trying to escape then rose is coming in but she does have a seductive kind of presentation and then the truck driver kind of picks her up and it didn't appear that there was some expectation of sex and that it, then it was an old lady in in a car that picked her up as a hitchhiker the only real victim who's pursuing a potential sexual interest happens later so there was a guy in a porno theater who approached her, who obviously had a sexual intentions. And in the mall, uh, the guy mm -hmm. comes up to her, tries to pick her up, and he obviously had an intention of some sexual encounter. And then Santa gets shot. Right. Unrelated, unrelated, but worth well, mentioning. It was related, but thematically different. So I hear what you're saying. There is a there is a, an air of sexuality to this process, but it's difficult to put one's finger on uh, or in where this is most prevalent if the requirements to feed the armpit anus penis syringe are physical proximity physical intimacy mm -hmm. there's obviously a way to achieve that for a beautiful woman which is to approach or respond to the approaches of amorous men mm -hmm. how, how else are you going to get your armpit within striking distance is my question yeah no you're you're right i mean randomly hugging people isn't mm -hmm. socially acceptable and you have to have a, a, a victim that is pushing in for the hug or is not pushing back against the hug. What about this? You go to a mall uh -huh. and you advertise a deodorant. Oh, you, sort of, you sort of stand there in the middle of the mall. You know how people try to sell little things in the middle of the mall? And you, mm -hmm. you claim that you have this amazingly functional deodorant that has all these wonderful properties. And, and to convince your buyers 
you invite them to smell your own armpit, which has been wow. treated with the deodorant. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, they have to go behind a little privacy curtain, of course, because it's not something that everyone needs to see. And then as they lean in for that first smell of your amazing product, out comes the penis syringe. Not a bad idea. As you described it, I was thinking maybe I'm in the mall and I have my little kiosk and I'm selling crutches, you know, mm. but at first I have like an injured foot. And so I'm like, ah, oh, can you help me? I need to, I need to move from crutches to, to this so other you're, crutch. You're selling crutches <laughs> and you ironically need a crutch. At the same time. If I'm Rose and I have a cast on my leg, people are going to be sympathetic to me needing to put my arm around them to kind of, you know, move to the next set of crutches to sell. You know, who's, who's the best one to sell crutches is that one that needs to use them. And then each time I, oh, oh, geez. And then, oh, what was that? On the back of my neck there. I'm, oh, sorry. And then maybe you buy the crutch. Maybe you don't. I mean, the intention isn't to sell crutches. You know, you see, that's the, as they call maybe um, the bait and switch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any one of those three methods I think would, would <laughs> work great. But let me just move into this idea of what I would describe as a Cronenbergian turn. Mm. Turning from a former paradigm to a new paradigm. Yeah, I think that there is a possibility here. I'm just going to put this out there and and see what your thoughts are. Where in the 60s, early 70s, the horror genre is mostly populated with a supernatural type movie. You have insane amount of Dracula movies, actually. Son of Dracula, Sister of Dracula, lots of Dracula movies. But overall, there's a a fantasy element, there's a, a witch element, there's all these sort of like mythological horror elements that that really populate most of the, the movies in the 60s and 70s. This idea of horror that's far away from me in a distant land of curiosities that I have distance from, but I can appreciate. And so I, I'm horrified at a possibility, but this isn't in my world. This is a completely different world that I can look through the little peak hole and see but from my safety of my house, it's not here. It's over there, but it's still horrifying. And so the Cronenbergian turn is that this has now been positioned front and center, right in front of you. In fact, possibly inside you. Mm-hmm. Inescapable horror, essentially. This is horror that through a possible casual encounter of just someone putting their arm around you ends in a horrible situation or these plots take place in apartment complexes of density, possibly my neighbor, possibly someone down the street has this horrible virus or, or, you know, armpit penis. And it infects, it even kills a baby, you know, of, of something of intimacy and closeness and preciousness right there in front of you. What used to be far and scary at a distance has now become very close, intimate, terrifying, the Cronenbergian turn. And maybe there's two elements to the Cronenbergian turn. One is that the rabies spreads throughout the whole city. And so there's a there's a societal danger. The entire society in which of which I'm a member is being endangered by this outbreak. Mm-hmm. So that brings the terror close to home. And the other one is that Rose, at least, is asymptomatic. There's no outward sign that she's going to wrap her arms around you and feed Mm. And therefore, that's a different kind of intimacy because you can't see it coming in the way that you can see Dracula or Frankenstein or or something like that. Hidden threat and local society eroding threat. Mm -hmm. And maybe even 
my body has turned against me. So the threat has become not only external, but internal. How much closer can you get than inside my body, Brian? Not very much closer. So where do zombie movies as a genre fit? Do they pre-sage the Cronenbergian turn? Or are they part of the Cronenbergian turn? Because they're, they're pre-Cronenberg, right? Yeah, so Night of the Living Dead, I think, was 68, 69, something like that. And uh, there were a few zombie movies in that time window. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I do think that the zombie tends to take on um, a societal monster. The threat is much like a rabies in a sense because it's in the society, but it's almost a contained entity that I can define and point at. It's those things out there. It's close, it's near, and it's trying to get into the house. There's a lot of home invasion elements here, but it's still outside. It's, it's, it's real close, but it's not quite as close. And it's still kind of defined as the monster. It's the mummy. It's the skeletons. It's, the, it's like a mob. So the mob in itself has a single entity. It's an identifiable external threat. Yeah, there you go. That's true. Well... The Cronenbergian turn. What what uh what has followed from the Cronenbergian turn? Or in what sense are we still living under this new paradigm? That's to be discovered. This possibility has been birthed, much like uh, an armpit penis. We haven't quite found where it has stabbed and infected uh, mm. and, and then propagated. Well done, David. A one man paradigm shift. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's influenced the genre to a degree that maybe few know. And I think that these early movies, I haven't seen Shivers, but he doesn't continue making horror movies, right? So he comes in, changes the entire paradigm, mm. and then drops the mic, so to speak, and starts making different kinds of movies. Movies about people tattooing illegally grown internal organs with Vigo Mortensen. Right. He kind of straddles this sci-fi horror type genre, which he's almost created his own genre, really. The biggest movie he did was The Fly from 86. That's a sci-fi movie in my review. It has horrific elements, but so does Alien. Mm. That fits in a, a sci-fi bucket. We're still unpacking this paradigm shift, clearly. Yeah, exactly. We're experimenting with these ideas, and, and who's to say? Maybe our, our listener might be able to either... <laughs> Did you say listener? ...prove or disprove this potential <laughs> paradigm shift, the Cronenbergian turn. Again, penis... Genius. Not sure what that stands. Yeah. Uh, with all with all John's big ideas, you never know. I think there might be a third option now, which is armpit syringe penis. Right. Hidden penis. I have a, a segment, John. As as always, we're going to be dissolving some of the most thorny philosophical questions uh, in our talk today. Right. Okay. And uh, this movie suggests the theme of, of vaccination. It doesn't really explore it. Everyone in the movie seems to, as far as we can tell, queue up in order to be vaccinated. Uh, they they have a vaccine against this outbreak, which is, I don't know if it was just a standard rabies vaccine or whether they very, very quickly developed an effective vaccine. But it's not a big theme in the movie. But it did remind me of recent times uh, and, and current times living through COVID. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on COVID vaccines? Should all people have to get one or should there be some some choice oh you know we're stepping into some uh concerning territory as it relates yeah. to politics personal choice i wouldn't want to offend any of our our listeners or listener yeah yeah, yeah. any part um, of that one listener 
Right. I think that I won't even say what I think. I would say that in what are general, some possible positions, some possible positions. Yeah. A possible position in the ebb and flow of this is that it's strongly recommended that one does it, but requiring pushes into an authoritarian maybe requirement. And I think people start to feel uncomfortable under those conditions. Yeah, certainly there's a, I think there's two ways that one can look at getting a vaccine. You can do it from a position of self-interest. Like I don't want to get this disease and I know the vaccine will diminish the harm if I do get the illness. So there's a self-interest angle, but there's also right. a more ethically nuanced and maybe more ethic, more philosophically more interesting idea of, of the common good. There's a, a phenomenon in epidemiology called herd mentality. Uh, herd immunity, I'm familiar with, but mentality may not. Herd immunity. I was, oh, thinking, okay. I was thinking of something else. Well, that, that's also an interesting idea, maybe, but if, if it exists. How would you define herd immunity? Herd immunity, as far as my understanding of it, is that once you break a certain percent of the population that has been vaccinated from a, a particular illness, then it doesn't have the ability to replicate itself. It becomes isolated and and dies through its inability to reproduce. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't even require 100% vaccination rates. I think it's it's something like 93 or something. So should should nine out of 10 people, let's say, get the vaccine, that one person out of 10 who didn't get it still benefits because, yeah, the disease can't can't propagate that way. Mm -hmm. So I personally, I would get a vaccine for self-interest. The Oh, you'd go the self-interest route. The right? self-interest route, yeah. And mm -hmm. I understand that it's also serving the common good, but that's not what motivates me to get it. What, what mm -hmm. motivates me to get it is... I don't want to get very sick. And mm -hmm. so I think it's it's interesting, these arguments for things like mandatory vaccines for the entire population or for even segments of the population, for example, healthcare workers. Those arguments often focus, I feel, on what you're doing for the common good. And we need to achieve herd immunity for the common good. But those arguments aren't as motivating I believe mm -hmm. that than the self-interest argument. Yeah. I would say that most people are, are motivated by self-interest and then secondary comes the polis as one might say, or the society and society is typically thought of secondarily to the individual. I think that that's just how people are. I, and, and, and to a degree, maybe that's the only way they can be a self-sacrificial element under certain conditions, maybe, but Overall, if my motivations are externally placed, my ability to survive has dropped tremendously because I haven't prioritized my own ability to reproduce and, and survive. An abstract concept could be that, well, I should do this for society and, hey, look, it might benefit me too, but if there's no benefit for me, I'm not doing it. If I review this and think there's either no benefit for me or a negative benefit for me, I don't think many people are going to do it. Do you think that when there are mandatory vaccination rules, for example, I, I did a little research and there's no federal mandatory vaccinations. Every every mandatory vaccination, things like smallpox for kids or whatever, those are done on state or local levels of government. Hmm. But a lot of exceptions are allowed for religious objections. You can choose to not get a vaccine 
under certain certain mandates or or not have your child vaccinated under certain mandates because of a religious objection that feels still like an individual interest i don't want to get a vaccine because if i do i will sin and therefore i will be in eternal damnation another individual choice in a sense a selfish yeah. choice so ultimately we're we're willing to hinder our approach towards herd immunity in order for you not to feel like you've sinned against your God? Yeah, or that I am a bit suspicious to government and feel that if I get this injection, I will be tracked by Joe Biden or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Politics you know? have entered into it. Right, exactly. But that's still a, a personal interest decision, not a societal interest decision. One final point is the ability that our ethical consideration has to widen beyond our own self-interest. I think that going from this vaccine will help me to not be sick or conversely, not getting this vaccine will allow me to avoid government implants or, or uh, avoid compromising my immune system in some scientifically unforeseen way. Those considerations focus on my own self-interest. And then, and then we have this other idea that herd immunity is a common good and we need to all chip in and do our part in order to make that happen. But I wonder if there's a more ethically stimulating middle ground in terms of the benefits for others, expanding just slightly beyond your self-interest and considering not the entire nation or even the entire city, but rather just thinking of, of your family members or your extended family or your coworkers and having their health in mind and maybe just your family to start, do you feel like that just reducing the herd to that size would uh, overcome, would trigger the, the ethical instincts in the same way that individual self-interest triggers them? I think that there's a extension of self to other. So my partner is me as much as I am me, maybe not 100%, but 60%, 40%. So if I marry someone and they die, part of me dies. So there, I think that it might be less about me becoming more altruistic to the other, but more me extending myself into the other. So now I still have a selfish reason because now that person is part of me. So if I have a face to it, there could be some sympathy, but I do think that it's more of an extension of self than a sort of altruistic sort of review of it. And to give a little bit of air to this Maybe what might seem like a selfish decision to not get a vaccination could be that, well, if I live in a society that forces everyone to get a vaccination, that's not good for anyone. And therefore, I will not get the vaccination in protest of that. So, you know, just to kind of give some viewpoints across the board here is that that may at first feel like a selfish decision, but might in fact be more of a, a societal viewpoint that that uh, extends itself, where it's, I'm doing this for societal good, I will get the vaccination because that's good for society, or I won't get the vaccination because that's good for society. I don't want to live in a society in which this is a requirement, and so I'm self-sacrificing in both categories. And I'm sure there's others that kind of spread out from there, but just kind of giving weight to those two viewpoints. And boom, we've solved it. Good, good job, John. Yeah, once again, it's just these things are so easy to slice through with with these kind of uh, minds and, and our incredible ability to uh, 
to see right through uh, some of the thorniest uh, Gordian knots of philosophy. <laughs> yeah, I think that maybe we should get sponsored by a coffee company or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. some 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 uh, some sponsors. We're definitely looking for a sponsor. So if you're out there and you own a coffee company <laughs> and you're looking for one additional sale, yeah. uh, you know, just, just, <laughs> just you know, email us at, a, at an email that we've never provided, right. uh, or <laughs> we could be sipping your coffee on air and commenting on its deliciousness. It's <laughs> four different flavors. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am always happy to talk about a David Cronenberg film, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that even at the end of the movie, there's no conclusion to it. Main character put in a garbage compactor or whatever those things are called. And then movie ends, but nothing ultimately resolved. So it's like he put a canvas out there and we painted it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I guess it's, uh, what, 5.30 a.m. now. We should probably yeah. get uh, on to the next band. Yeah. Got to get to the next campsite. Mm-hmm. Yeah.